Hey everyone, John Heilman here, and welcome to another edition of Hell and High Water, my podcast for the recount about politics and culture on the edge of Armageddon, with big ups to my pal Riza, the presiding genius behind the sound of Wu-Tang Clan, and the producer of our dope theme music, and we're back again today with someone who has never produced any music for this podcast, but who is a co-creator of it. More importantly, if there was no Grace Weinstein, there would be no Hell and High Water. Grace, how's it going? As per usual, I'm doing well. It's summertime, so I can't complain. And I would say also, you, I think it probably put you in a good mood to be having a little introductory part in a podcast you co-created. I mean, you got some pride of authorship here. Absolutely. Intellectual stimulation on a Monday morning? Absolutely. Well, we got a lot of that for you here because on today's podcast, we have two incredibly smart guests who are dealing with, I don't know, I'm not sure there's any more important issue to the country and the future of our democracy, uh, and that issue is voting rights. Eric Holder, former Attorney General, and Sam Koppelman, his co-author, they are the two writers of this new book called Our Unfinished March, The Violent Past and Imperiled Future of the Vote. I don't think you've read it yet, Grace. Obviously, other than there's a very important issue. What do you want? Do you want an instruction manual for how to fight for voting rights? Do you want a history lesson? What's in this book that you think is going to be interesting? I think a primer for how to approach the fight that you said might be the most consequential of our lifetime would be a really useful thing for everybody right now, because to my surprise and displeasure, voting rights as a cultural and political and dominant issue has fallen to the wayside. And I think this book is arriving at exactly the right time to figure out how to refill that space to get people talking about this at all anymore which is great. Totally. Eric Holder is a controversial figure. A lot of people on the right really hate him. But, you know, when the history of, of the country is written, the first African-American attorney general of the United States who held that job for six years from 2009 to 2015, the first six years of the Obama administration, New York native, Stuyvesant High School, Columbia University, Columbia Law School, goes to the Department of Justice. He becomes a superior court judge in D.C., the U.S. attorney for D.C., the deputy attorney general, and then becomes attorney general. He's one of the most important black legal figures in the history of the country. And then ends up getting involved in a lawsuit. The Justice Department sues Shelby County, Alabama. And that case, which the department ultimately wins and then ultimately loses before the Supreme Court, the case is called Shelby County versus Holder. It's the Supreme Court ruling that tore down Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act and basically is part of why we are in the predicament we're in right now. I guess my question for you is, what are the questions you hope these two address in the course of our conversation? Then I'll tell you whether we did. All right. So my number one question is, how do we bring this issue from backstage back to being a marquee issue of American politics? It's, as you said, a defining issue if we are not going to be able to participate in a lively, flourishing, functioning baseline democracy, then what have we at all? So that's one question. Another oh, question. That's not just lively and functioning, but let's also say a fair democracy and a real democracy where everybody has a chance to participate. And we've kind of just totally taken that for granted and forgot that um, it hasn't quite been functioning that way, especially with all of the nonsense after 2020 of we're not going to certify. And how do these things work in real time when Republican legislatures are going to rewrite these laws top to bottom? Another question that I'm interested in is how the Supreme Court is going to function in all of this moving forward, because the Overton window has so shifted on this court that we suddenly view Chief Justice Roberts as this kind of 
merciful middle ground, so to say, <laughs> yeah. which obviously considering 2013 Shelby versus Holder wasn't the case. You'll be happy to know that we covered that in the podcast. And so you'll get your answers there. There's a lot of history in this book where they go back and kind of trace the promise of a real democracy and then the impediments to it that have been there throughout our history, the attempts to overcome them and then the repeal of some of those attempts. And now these Republican state legislatures all over the country trying to make it harder for mostly people of color to vote. So all of that gets covered. The other thing I find is fascinating is that Holder steps out of the usual tradition of a former attorney general who's willing to comment on what the current attorney general and one from his party should do or how they should think about a very large question, which is, should Donald Trump be indicted? I really drilled down on it with him here. And well, let's take a listen to one of the things he said. The leaks that have come from the January 6th committee, the great job that people in the media have done in finding out who said what and the plans that they had, you know, even the involvement of Ginny Thomas in, in, in all of these things has made me understand the breadth and depth of what it is that they were trying to do. And it certainly pushed me more towards the side of an indictment of a former president, understanding how divisive it might be. So that is, I mean, pretty interesting, right? And you'll also be thrilled to know that Holder's co-author, Sam Koppelman, a son of my friend Brian Koppelman, the creator and showrunner of Billions, and a brilliant young man who is in his 20s and was the chief speechwriter for Better O'Rourke and led surrogate speechwriting for the Biden campaign in 2020, has written speeches for some of the most famous politicians in America, and his pen, which comes through in a lot of this book, he's not a ghostwriter, he's a co-author of this book with the former Attorney General of the United States, Eric Holder. Sammy's a pretty impressive kid, don't you think? Absolutely. I wonder if we had a face-off, you and me, co-creators of uh, Helen Highwater versus Eric Holder and Sam Koppelman, who would win? <laughs> oh, that's a, that's the kind of a good idea. We should we definitely should do that. We should play a foosball, you know, where um, me and you against those two. I'm actually maybe pretty, they do a beer beer pong. <laughs> beer 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 pong. Yes, I'm pretty confident that that I'm better at those games than Holder. The only question is, are you better than Sam? Yeah. You think so? Beer yeah. pong. Beer pong. Yeah. Okay. All right. Good. Well then let's do it. Grace Weinstein. Great uh, to see you again. All of our uh, listeners settle in, buckle down, listen to this great, fantastic episode that we have with Eric Holder and Sam Koppelman, the authors of the fantastic and really important new book, Our Unfinished March, The Violent Past and Imperiled Future of the Vote. When we talk about things that constitute hell and high water, the assault on voting rights is maybe the most imperiling, most important, most daunting form of that phenomenon that we cover week in, week out here on Hell and High Water. I'll say for the record here that we're recording this uh, podcast on Wednesday, May 25th, which is the day after the horrific shooting in Texas and Uvalde. And I think I want to start by playing a little bit of Joe Biden talking about that on television last night, and we will get going. I had hoped... When I became president, I would not have to do this again. Another massacre, Uvalde, Texas, an elementary school, beautiful, innocent, second, third, fourth graders. As a nation, we have to ask, when in God's name are we going to stand up to the gun lobby? When in God's name we do what we all know in our gut needs to be done?
So uh, Eric Holder, Sam Koppelman here, the authors of a tremendous new book, which we're going to spend a fair amount of time talking about, Our Unfinished March, The Violent Past and Imperiled Future of the Vote, A History, A Crisis, A Plan, The Men, The Myth, The Legends. Eric Holder, good to see you. Sam Koppelman, good to see you too. It's good to see you, John. Say hi, Sam. Hey, how's it going? Good to be here. Uh, well, not that great, obviously. Eric, I want to ask you just to start here, right? You know, Joe Biden's saying, I, as, when I became president, I hoped I would never have to do this again. I appreciate the sentiment. It seems like if he actually means it, it's sort of ludicrous. I mean, we know what the pace of mass shootings are in America, and there was no world in which Joe Biden wasn't going to have to do this. And, and as president, he's had to do it a number of times just, he had to do it just like 10 days ago. I'm, I don't mean to laugh or make light of it, but it feels to me there were mass shootings before Sandy Hook. But you were attorney general when Newtown happened 10 years ago, almost December of 2012. Just take me back to then and whether it was as jarring for you, still stands the worst school shooting in American history, what you took away from it and whether you could have predicted or did at the time think, Jesus, man, for the next 10 years, nothing will change. In some ways, things will get worse. I mean, I actually thought, John, that Sandy Hook would be a turning point, that it the crime was so horrific, the victims were were so compelling. I mean, these were babies, you know, little children and their teachers. And the the number of these young, I say young people, these children, the number was so large that I thought that even given with the strength of the NRA, the gun lobby, the opposition of the Republican Party, and the fear some Democrats had of the gun lobby, that we would get to a point where we would start to put in place some gun safety measures. And, you know, interestingly, then Vice President Joe Biden and I met with a whole series of gun groups, advocates for a whole variety of causes and, and concerns. And I actually thought that we were going to have in place a series of measures that Congress would actually do something with. The only group that did not meet with us, that refused to meet with us, was the NRA. And we met with a whole bunch of other gun groups and learned from them about concerns that they had, tried to tailor our proposals to deal with what I thought were some legitimate issues that they raised. But the NRA did not meet with us. And then we saw what happened in Congress, the inability of Congress to respond to something that the American people, and this cuts across, I mean, people don't understand this, this cuts across party lines, ideological lines. The American people are for reasonable gun safety measures that could have an impact on what happened in Sandy Hook 10 years ago and what happened in Texas just yesterday. Sam, you were 17 when Sandy Hook happened, right? You were still, were you still, you got yeah, left that's right. college yet? No, I remember I was in, I was in Chinese yeah. class in high school and got the push notification and stepped outside and was completely gut-wrenching. You know, Columbine happened in 1999, and that was the first time it really clocked for me that like there was a thing happening here that was potentially culture-changing. If you're a school kid now, everybody lives in a little bit of fear, sometimes in more than a little bit of fear. Like, was that yet part of your existence when you were in school? You know, we had these lockdown drills, which I guess started when I was in high school. And even at that age, it was so hard to process the idea that, you know, in this sacred spot, these learning places where parents, you know, trust kids to go and be safe. We were in jeopardy and I was in high school. You know, I spent a lot of time today thinking about obviously the parents who said goodbye and are not gonna see these kids ever again. And the teachers who watched their colleagues celebrating the last week of school and then get killed trying to save the lives of their students. But also just thinking about those other kids in the school, the classmates who have witnessed this and are gonna 
have to live with that trauma and understand it for the rest of their lives. And I'll tell you, just growing up without any of this gun violence in my life personally, but being aware of it shaped the way I saw the world and the amount of trust I had and the people around me. And it's just unimaginable what's going to happen with these kids who are growing up with this stuff happening all the time and at ages way younger than I ever even had to think about this. You know, and I want to just echo something that Sam said that is really important. I mean, obviously, our greatest concern is with those who lost their lives and their immediate family and the impact that that will have long term. But let me tell you about the impact it had on me. I went up there about four or five days after Sandy Hook to meet with some brave first responders, the crime scene search officers who processed the scene. I went into the classroom and little things stick in your mind. I saw things in the carpet, little tufts of carpet picked up. I didn't quite understand that. Crime scene search guy said, that's where the bullets went. You know, that's where the bullets went. I saw hanging on in the classroom, you know, what the kids were planning to do during the course of the year. I'm going to learn how to spell better, you know, with a B going the wrong way or something like that. All these cute little things. And then I saw the pictures, the pictures. And that has stayed with me, haunted me. I am convinced that if America had been with me on that tour and the American people had seen what I saw, that we would have actually had we would have had movement. I'm not to say that things got sanitized, but it was made real for me in a way that it was not made real for the American people and certainly not for people in our political class. Well, I want to come back to that in a second because I've had an interesting colloquy just in the last 24 hours with a number of people because I was literally on live television yesterday when this happened and was in one of those terrible positions where not only are you having to deal with the, with the tragedy of it and the horror of it and the unexpectedness of it, but also feeling like I've had to, I've been on television after a lot of these and I don't know what to say that's new. I always try to figure out some way to say something new and, and I, you, I can speak emotionally about things, but I don't know what to say that's new about this because in the end, when people say, well, is this going to change anything, John? I go, no, you know, and I go back to your point, Eric, about the, the NRA. Everybody tells me the NRA is collapsing and, and that there's structural problems and that they, you know, there's all those, those are all true. But the power they exert, or the gun lobby more broadly exerts, whether that's the ammunition manufacturers, gun manufacturers, NRA itself, groups farther to the right than the NRA. You know, when you saw the way that Ted Cruz and, and others, Mitch McConnell, reacted to this in the media 24 hours, like, no, we're not changing our minds. There's no background for compromise. There's no ground for, for trying to do anything about this. They're as dug in as they ever were. So today, Greg Abbott, another person who, when he ran for the governorship, said he was embarrassed one year. When he was when a gubernatorial candidate right. said he was embarrassed that, that Texas had come in second to California in terms of requesting only a million, a million new guns in the previous year. He's like, I'm embarrassed. Pick up the pace, Texas. That's what Greg Abbott said. So better work at this uh, press conference today that Abbott did. Better work was a former presidential candidate, now a gubernatorial candidate, and who, for whom Sam worked, invaded that space and was cussed out by the Texas Republicans and then went outside and talked to reporters and said the following thing. Let's play this. Now is the time to stop the next shooting. Um, right after Santa Fe High School was the time to stop the next shooting. Right after El Paso was the time to stop the next shooting. Right after Midland Odessa was the time to, to stop the next shooting. And in each case, we say this isn't the time. Now is the time. Like literally right now, the majority of Texas is not reflected by that governor or those people around the table who talk about mental health care or say that this is pure evil or that it was absolutely unpredictable. This is predictable. It will happen and it will continue to happen until we change course. Sam, tell me what you thought about your former boss when you saw that today on television. 
you know, the Republicans there tried to frame it as a stunt. And I was in El Paso in the days following that shooting and saw the way that Beto not only stopped fundraising for his campaign, stopped doing events, stopped traveling, but decided that what he was gonna do was just spend his nights with those families. He was in the hospital for hours and hours and hours while running a presidential campaign and got to know all these people. And I watched that anger build and the sadness and all of it calcify and then strengthen. And you know that obviously culminated in that moment in the debate when he said, hell yes, we're gonna come and buy your AR-15s back. And you know, a lot of people were like, what's the strategy behind this? Like, what's he thinking politically? It's like, he wasn't thinking politically. He was thinking about the people he met who he spent those nights with and those families and was just acting from the heart. I think he was doing that today as well. The thing that's so tricky about this, and it gets back to some of the themes of our book, but this is ultimately a democracy problem and an institution's problem. And the state legislature in Texas is so gerrymandered that no one in there, not a single Republican, is worried about their challenger as much as they're worried about a primary. And so fundamentally, they're just gonna keep passing more and more and more extreme laws until they actually have to compete in competitive elections and we overcome gerrymandering and we overcome the fact that, you know, the Senate, there's 50 Democrats, 50 Republicans, Democrats won 40 million more votes for the same number of seats. Like that's the reason this stuff's not getting done. It's the fundamental structural problems with American democracy and more than anything else, Beto's outrage and all of our outrage and sadness, what we should channel that into is, yes, advocating for these policies, but knowing that this has happened again and again and again and there's been no change, what we need to advocate for is structural reforms to our democracy that makes it possible for the will of the people to actually be reflected. People who, 90% of whom support universal background checks, 70% of whom support assault weapons bans of certain kinds. So this is not about convincing the people. This isn't about Beto making more speeches. This is about changing our democracy so it is one. So here's my question about this, right? First, I would say that I think that there's a massive number of people who feel Beto's rage, his anger, and his urgency. People who say that it's not time. We shouldn't be politicizing this issue. It's like, what do you mean? <laughs> this is an issue about public policy that, about which there's politics shot through it. If you do something, it's political. If you don't do something, it's political. It's all political. So shut up of this sophistry of the worst kind to say, we shouldn't talk about politics of this. I mean, it's just absurd and morally offensive. So I think a lot of people, not just Democrats, not just people on the left, will see better and think, yeah, it is time. We need to do something. We need to do something now, and we need to make it political because it is political. I think that's all fair. Here's the thing that I also know, and Eric, this is why I want to come back to this thing, to this question with you. The time isn't now. It's not going to change tomorrow. It's not. It's not going to change there, and it's not going to change for reasons that are structural. As Sam just pointed out, a lot of them are structural. Now, some of those structural problems don't necessarily affect Texas. The Texas Attorney General, Mr. Paxton, who yesterday proposed the notion that the, the solution to this is to arm teachers and administrators. That guy also ran in the Texas primary yesterday and won 68% of the vote against George P. Bush. And that's not a gerrymandering problem. The Texas Republican Party likes Attorney General Paxton. So my question to you is this. Why didn't Sandy Hook, that you thought would trigger a profound kind of cultural moral change, why do you think that it didn't? And I think the answer somewhere in that is why all of these haven't, right? Nothing has really been able to shock the system in the way, and this is the, the conversation that I was having. Somebody suggested to me today that was recalling the fact that Rosa Parks said that one of the things that motivated her to get on the bus and not ride in the back of the bus Till. was seeing pictures of Emmett Till. And this person said to me, we're going to need to show the, the destroyed bodies of children 
to really shock the moral system of America. That's what has to happen. In the same way as the pictures of Emmett Till shocked the nation and, and inspired Rosa Parks, that's what needs to happen now. If we don't see the actual pictures of dead, destroyed, ripped to shreds children's bodies, we're never going to change. That's the only possible shock to the system that's left because if these things we've seen already haven't shocked the system, starting with Sandy Hook and from then on, how can we expect anything to shock the system? But we need to do something more in that vein. I ask you what you think about all of that. Well, no, I, I think what you're saying is consistent with what I w was, was saying earlier. If America had seen what I saw on that day, you know, not, not what you see on the news, but the raw crime scene search photographs, the blood in a classroom. I almost hate to describe this, but, you know, the, the little kids you know, piled up almost like, like logs, pieces of wood with blood everywhere. I mean, if people had seen those pictures, uh, I think you could have had an Emmett Till, Rosa Parks moment. But the likelihood that that is going to happen, that we are going to allow people to see what happened in, in Texas on the screens of our televisions are probably pretty unlikely. So we've got to certainly focus on the question of guns and access to guns. But there's also, we've got to ask ourselves about what is it about our culture that allows us to be, you know, the nation that we have become. Yeah, we've got sick people, people with mental things, but other countries have them as well. We've got people who are dissatisfied with the system, and other countries do as well. Now, we have substantially greater numbers of guns. We have easier, easier access to guns, and I think that has to be part of the solution. But I think there is a range of other things that we have got to ask ourselves about who we are as a nation, who we have become as a nation. How was this nation founded? Why are we so violent? All of these things have to be a part of the ultimate solution. But I think we also have to come up with ways in which we somehow, some way, shock the people of this nation into the needed action. The, the most obvious way is what the one that you described. You want to see what happened? You want to say that you don't care about AK-47s and about the deaths of little angels? Look at what these goddamn guns did to the bodies of, of those kids. You know, you, you put that out there and then you give me the, the oft indicted Texas attorney general, the idiot who is the, the lieutenant governor there, Greg Abbott, have them try to explain to the American people and to the people of their state why they're still in favor of whatever it is the gun lobby wants them to do. Sam, it sounds like Eric Holder's in favor of the solution that this person proposed to me. I saw you cringe and shake your head when I suggested that those photographs would be a, the kind of shock to the system that's necessary to actually get movement on this issue. Do you disagree? No, I was cringing thinking about what those photographs would show. Would look like, yeah. Those images are just so horrifying. You think about that moment with Emmett Till, that didn't just happen. Those newspapers weren't planning on running that photo. His mother, we write about this in the book, yeah. chose Jet, Jet Magazine, to have an yeah. open casket yeah. funeral and to let reporters in yeah. and to put those yeah. photos and papers around the country. And I wouldn't, under any circumstances, deign to give advice to the parents who are going through well, truly unimaginable and, 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 loss. Right. And, see, and Sam makes the point. I mean, that's, you know, ain't, uh, Emmett Till's mom decided this is what she wanted to do. This is maybe what I think would shock the system, but how do you ask the parents of those dead little kids yeah. to allow their pictures to be used in that way? I mean, what she did took remarkable courage, um, yes. <laughs> a, a courage I can't even begin to imagine.
And I, you know, we we're asking these other parents to do something that is uh, unbelievably extraordinary. I don't want to say I'm for it. Yeah. My immediate reaction was that I thought it would never happen and that the combination of the media is wanting to be respectful of those parents and for the thing you just said, which is that most parents, the vast majority of parents would never want to take part in that. I, I don't think it's impossible under the circumstances that you wouldn't find a parent who would be willing to do what, what Emma Till's family did. I don't think it's impossible. I don't think you'd need all of them. And I don't know how it would work. I'm not trying to propose something here. I'm more trying to say, because people caught on cable why was it taking so long to know what the number was? And, and people were like, because they can't tell how many bodies there are. They're, they're still trying to figure out because they're so ripped to pieces that you can't really tell initially. Putting that together was taking time. People were stunned to hear that on CNN and some of the other networks last night. The image of it in people's minds, they don't really think about it, like what it must look like inside those rooms. And the fact that people were are so desperate for this to end that people are proposing such a grisly and, and grotesque possible solution it does raise the possibility that there might be a parent who, who would say, yes, if this will help bring it to an end, I would be willing to do that. That's not impossible. I wouldn't be surprised if at least one didn't say, sure, if, that, if you think that'll help. Yeah. But somehow, some way, the reality of this has to be brought to the American people. When you get shot with an AK-47 at close range, and especially if you're a relatively small person, as kids are, the impact is not the kind of antiseptic thing that you see on television, maybe, or movies where you see a bullet hole and maybe some blood comes down. I mean, bodies get dismembered. Arms yeah. separate from bodies. Faces become yeah. unrecognizable. Even though you have kids in a classroom and you know who the 30 kids are in the classroom, you've got to do DNA things, analyses, to try to determine what is the name of, that should be attached to what remains of this body. I mean, this is um, this is hard stuff to talk about, but that is yeah, that is a sure. reality that I certainly saw at Sandy Hook, and unfortunately, it's what we're having to deal with again in uh, in, in Texas. And you know, it's worth noting that after Emma Till's mom let those photographers in and those papers were all across the country. What that did is it helped spark a whole yeah. new generation of activism that led to a lot more death and carnage. The Mississippi Freedom Summers sure. come afterwards, partly inspired course, by that, yeah. and. These kids come down and they end up dying, one buried alive. And then that inspires more action. And I guess the takeaway from these fights that seem like they're taking place in the face of unimaginable intransigence that can't make a difference no matter what happens, what it takes is a series of incredibly brave actions and then real consequences where right. in many people's lives, the story ends with an unhappy ending. Like there's a lot of people who died during yes. that fight for yes. voting rights and that was it. And then people picked up the baton and that's, you know, why you've got to keep fighting in the face of the fact that, as you said, we know change is not going to happen today. But what we do today can plant that seed. Right. At least you hope. Well, I said this to one person today. With all due respect to Rosa Parks, Rosa Parks didn't bring about voting rights or civil rights. It was the movement. Rosa Parks, brave woman. But the civil rights movement deserves a huge amount of credit for what happened. Obviously, an enormous amount of credit for it. But that movement was a complicated movement with a lot of people, a lot of failures and some big successes and some incredibly noble leaders collectively all managed to get that work done. To achieve big things, movements are necessary. And that's what's going to be necessary, I think, in this case, too. I want to ask you guys one last question about news of day before we turn to the book. It's something, the thing I expect to be talking about, which is these primaries that took place. And there's one, of course, that's more important than others, at least in the context of your book. Interesting that we saw in this Georgia primary, a state where Donald Trump was very committed to the notion of beating three Republican candidates, the gubernatorial incumbent, Brian Kemp, the Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, and the Attorney General. And all of them 
all of them ended up winning in their primaries. Not winning by a little bit, winning by a lot. I mean, Brian Kemp wins by 50 points against Donald Trump's hand-picked challenger and David Perdue. Brad Raffensperger avoids a runoff against the Secretary of State candidate, Congressman Tice, who had basically said he would do Trump's bidding in the state. I want to just play one piece of Raffensperger sound so you guys can hear this because I think it it raises a number of questions and it's interesting, right? I want to hear what your interpretation is of what happened. Let's listen to Brad Raffensperger. He's the guy who would not help Donald Trump find those votes that he requested in the overtime of the 2020 election. Let's listen to him at his victory speech when he realized he was not going to face a runoff. He was going to get 50% of the vote and he would be the Republican nominee for the job he holds Secretary of State. The vast majority of Jordans are looking for honest people for elected office. Someone who would do their job, follow the law, and look out for them regardless of the personal cost to do so. Most people are good. In fact, most Georgians are wonderful. And today, we found our proof. Standing for you, standing for the rule of law, and election integrity, and standing for the truth, and not buckling under the pressure is what people want. What I have found is that every Georgian wants safe and secure elections with the right balance of accessibility with security. That's where Georgia voting is today. A lot in that. So I'm curious, Eric, just start with, it's a weird day in America when a lot of people on the left are psyched about Brian Kemp becoming the uh, the Republican uh, nominee for governor in the state of Georgia. But a lot of people are because they see it as a defeat to Trump. Raffensperger, also a bit of a hero on the left. But at the end of that, you hear him say, Georgia voting right now is in a great place. So there's stuff to talk about there. And I'd like to hear you start. Well, first, I'd say, look, you know, Raffensperger deserves credit for standing up to Donald Trump. You know, that find me 11,780 votes, whatever the, the, the number was. First, he didn't do it. And somebody had the, uh, the good sense to record the conversation, which I think is interesting. <laughs> um, and so he deserves credit for that. But he's also part of a Republican regime there that constantly comes up with these ways in which it's made more difficult for certain people to access the ballot, access polling places. They passed these measures that he supported after the the 2020 election. And you got to ask yourself exactly why. No indications of fraud, as he told Donald Trump. No indications that there was any kind of ballot manipulation. And so why then would you support all of these bills? They were not increasing access to the polls in those bills that they passed after 2020. Stuff like Uh, We're not going to allow you to give water and food to people who are waiting in line to vote. You think about, well, what is that all about? Well, (laughs) if you understand that it takes you a lot longer to vote if you're black in Georgia, much more likely to wait in line if you're a Democrat than if you are a Republican to vote in Georgia, kind of long lines to deal with. Oh, okay. So that makes sense. They're trying, let's, let's try to discourage people from waiting in, in long lines, make it more difficult for them. So again, Raffensperger deserves credit for what he did around the 2020 election, but he's no hero when it comes to voter access. And I think the thing that is most fundamental to our democracy, and that is the right to vote. Sam, you know, I think everything that Eric just said, we would agree with, right? Like uh, Raffensperger deserves some credit. And given the possibility that a Trump handpicked Secretary of State candidate who was basically in, in Congressman Tice, who's kind of constantly saying, basically, I will do what you're bidding and help you steal the 2024 election, we could think it's good that Raffensperger won Correct. this context. I think that's true. But it's also the case that not is it only true that the Georgia voting bill that got passed 
has all the problems that, that Eric just talked about. Yep. There's a thing in there that's much more insidious and nefarious, right? Which is they basically <laughs> obviated Raffensperger. They, they said, hey, here's a bill we're going to pass that wouldn't let you, Raffensperger, do in 2024 what you did in 2020, which is not about voter suppression, though that's all bad, but about the notion of voter nullification on the other side. And Raffensperger went along with a bill that would basically gut his ability to stand up to Donald Trump if Donald Trump is the nominee again in 2024, which I find like really yes. fucked up. I mean, I completely yeah. agree. And, you know, <laughs> what's so insidious about this whole thing is that fundamentally, these are people who, at least in the case of Raffensperger, believe in counting the votes, but they don't believe in making it easier to vote. And they're not necessarily interested in making it easier for Democrats to win election, even if they win fairly. I mean, that's a great example of the sort of hidden danger of these bills that are being passed. It's talked about way less than the giving water and, and food on the line. You know, in 2020, insurrection fails. And then these states work methodically to make sure that next time in 2024, the same thing takes place. They're going to have a much better chance of stealing the election. Raffensperger is basically, as the Secretary of State, is the chair of the state elections board previously. And as the chair of the state elections board, he was able to deal with the, the administration of the election, which allowed him to stand up to Donald Trump. The Georgia Republicans proposed this bill, as you said, Eric, not in reaction to any sign there was any fraud, right? They did it because Trump wanted them to. Raffensperger, who's so proud of the fact that he stood up to Trump, cedes to the notion that he will no longer be the chair of that board and the state legislature will now run that board. It's not just fucked up as in it's open to abuse and could allow Donald Trump to accomplish 2024 what he failed to do in 2020. But it's such a weird position for Raffensperger to be in, which is like, as the price of allowing me to have this job again, I will give up the thing that most qualifies me to have this job. It's such a bizarre piece of kind of pretzel logic on his part. It's like, I stood up Donald Trump, and that's why you should put me in this job. But I will not, in the future, I will not be able to stand up Donald Trump again because I've given up that power as part of some weird compact with the Trump forces in my state. Yeah, I mean, he said the people of Georgia are good. He said they're wonderful. He clearly also thinks that they're completely oblivious to what's taking place. If you had any idea what's taken place in Georgia over the last year, as they've moved responsibility for certifying elections from independent actors, who we all saw speak on TV after the election and who were heroes, in addition to Raffensperger, to state legislature-appointed folks who are obviously gonna be partisans, if you understand that that took place, then you get that last night was like essentially a show election, which we're glad that the result was the result that we got. But I have no confidence that Georgia, under Brian Kemp, who was the king of voter purges, famously right. in his gubernatorial race with Stacey Abrams, I mean, not to get too in the weeds, but like normally if you die or if you move, you get purged from the rolls. A bunch of states got really creative and they were like, oh, if you don't vote in a couple elections, you get purged from the rolls. Use it or lose it, which is nowhere in the Constitution. Someone who chooses not to vote, that's a choice. That's a protest in some way. We right. respect that as a country. He was getting all those people off the rolls. So any illusion that these folks at the top of Georgia's election administration have real interest in certifying legitimate elections is completely dubious. And as people will recall, back in 2018, Stacey Abrams, even though she acknowledged that she would have to basically give up, she refused to concede because she said basically Brian Kemp, as Secretary of State at that time, had essentially suppressed the vote and had stolen the election from her in 2018. So it's a weird victory, Eric, for democracy. Look, I mean, it could be worse, right? We could have Purdue and we could have Tice and those could be the Republican nominees. But in this case, 
it's a, still a weird victory for democracy and the rule of law and voting rights when Raffensperger conflicted in the way that I just described. And Stacey Abrams now has a rematch with the guy who she claimed with some justification had only won the election in 2018, Brian Kemp, that is, by using his office in a corrupt way in order to suppress the vote in order to win. That's a kind of a messed up reality that that's like what we consider a victory in 2022 in America. No, I mean, that is, in fact, a reality, a, a mess. It's, you know, it was an interesting and messy night that will lead to an interesting November. What are the referees going to do? I mean, if, if we have a close election here, that's what I think people have to understand. You know, if you see substantial numbers of black folks in Georgia getting to the polls over the course of the last few days, that's reason for some degree of joy. But we don't know how many people, when it gets to November, will be discouraged from going to the polls because they will not have the ability to vote. They won't have the ability to cast a ballot through the mails, all these other restrictions that have been put in place. And that could be decisive if you've got a 1%, 2% election. And so, yeah, you know, Raffensperger, hero for what he did against Trump, but he could have really kind of been a, even a bigger hero if he had said, you know, I'm standing against the politicization of the electoral infrastructure in this state. And yet he was silent on that. And it's interesting because that's taking away from him, I would think, one of the chief powers that he has as the Secretary of State. The job, I would think, is less attractive now than it would have been before those measures were put in place. We are going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with more of Hell and High Water after these messages. Welcome back to Hell and High Water. I, I want to get to the book in a direct way right now. And to do that, I want to play a little bit of sound, some archival sound of a famous speech by a famous United States president whose name was Lyndon Baines Johnson, who gave a speech in 1965 calling on the Congress before a joint session to pass the Voting Rights Act of 1965, an act that plays a very large part in the drama that would unfold over the subsequent years. You guys write about this speech in the book, number one. Number two, the fallout from the Voting Rights Act and then the way in which the Voting Rights Act got gutted is a really important both substantive and thematic spine throughout the entirety of your book, Our Unfinished March, The Violent Past and Imperiled Future of the Vote, A History of Crisis, and a Plan. And this is a little bit of the history. Let's listen to LBJ here. Many of the issues of civil rights are very complex and most difficult. But about this, there can and should be no argument. Every American citizen must have an equal right to vote. There is no reason which can excuse the denial of that right. There is no duty which weighs more heavily on us than the duty we have to ensure that right. So that's March 15th, 1965. I was not yet born. Sam was not even like a twinkle in anybody's eye. Eric Holder, you were, I think, about 15 at that point when LBJ gave that speech. Don't um, make me that old. I was only 14. Okay, 14. <laughs> Fair enough. All right. Last time we played an LBJ sot on this podcast, it was him talking about Hager Slacks and his bunghole. So that's a little bit more of a noble, more of a respectable sot there. Here he is, the Texas Southerner 
who passed the Civil Rights Act, passed the Voting Rights Act. What do you remember about LBJ, Eric, and, and, and that moment in 64 and 65 when these two incredibly important pieces of legislation got passed? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. For me, it goes back to, you know, the Freedom Riders. Um, again, I'm a kid. At that point, maybe I'm 12 years old, 11 years old. The Freedom Riders going from the north to the south, the firebombing of the buses, the dogs, the fire hoses, all of these things are brought back to me in my little black and white television set in Queens in my basement. And then as I'm getting just a bit older and a little more conversant with what's going on in, in the country, which still seems strange to me. I mean, I'm, I'm born and raised in New York City. And so, yeah. you know, my parents took me to vote all the time. And that's what we did. And then, you know, 1963, my late sister-in-law integrates the University of Alabama on the same day. Then after, right after that, John Kennedy gives that great civil rights speech. And later that evening, Medgar Evers is assassinated then the civil rights workers are assassinated. And, you know, what people tend to forget about all of those incidents, John Lewis, Edmund Pettison, that was all about getting people registered to vote. That was all about the vote. It wasn't just a civil rights demonstration or a civil rights effort. That was more specifically about the franchise. And all those things, each one kind of raised my consciousness and raised my desire. To, to be involved in some form or fashion in the movement. I went to law school, and it, that has been a defining thing in my legal career and is also what kept me involved in the fight for the vote even after I left uh, the Justice Department. Yeah, and I want us to just stick with you on this because, of course, you know, you have this incredibly esteemed career in the legal world, a lot of firsts and a lot of accomplishments, but then greater than becoming the first African-American attorney general of the United States, doing that job for quite a long time by the standards of normal AGs, like sticking around in the job for six years, et cetera. But in the middle of it, you end up in the middle of a lawsuit that goes directly to the Voting Rights Act. Is there anything more important than when you look back on your time now as attorney general, you think there's anything that's more meaningful for you and more significant for the country than that case? Well, in terms of the negative consequences of anything that happened while I was attorney general, I think that is number one. You know, as we talk about in the book, it wasn't a question of waiting, you know, months before those who wanted to subvert our democracy make it more difficult to vote. They didn't wait months. They didn't wait weeks. They waited days. Sam can talk about this. I mean, right. to say that, you know, we're, what we're going to do is take advantage of the fact that the Roberts Court or five members of the Roberts Court have gutted the Voting Rights Act of 1965, the crown jewel of the civil rights movement. And so these formerly covered jurisdictions are now going to put in place a whole range of things that makes it more difficult for people to vote to really kind of undercut our, our sense of democracy and the optimism that even I felt as, as a 14-year-old listening to that LBJ speech. When you talk about King watching that LBJ speech and, and tearing up, or, yeah. or I, I remember, I, I, I really remember the Johnson part of the speech where he says, we shall overcome, overcome and thinking yeah. to myself, okay, now that's different. I, I always associated we shall overcome with black folks marching in, in the South, Dr. King. And now here is the, the white president of the United States in Congress saying that we shall o overcome. So, you know, all of these things resonate with me. And to think that while I was attorney general in a case that <laughs> unfortunately my name is, is a part of, yes. all of that was undercut. All of that was undercut and continues to be undercut. Let's say the word Shelby County versus Holder. We're in 2013, right? 
not that long after Newtown, about six months later in June of 2013. And you just, you say in the book that the, the Voting Rights Act was gutted by the Roberts Court. Not exactly what you said at the time, which somewhat tried to make it sound not quite as bad. Maybe you didn't realize how badly the consequences would unfold. But also you say in the book that it shook your faith in the Supreme Court, or maybe you've said that in some press that you've done for the book. I can't remember where I read that quote, that this is an inflection point for you, undermining your faith in the court and an inflection point for the country in terms of voting rights. And Sam, I'm going to get to you right after I get this last answer from Eric, just because I think you're in the middle of this case. And I'm not, not saying you're responsible for having lost it, but it does have your name on it. And things have gone downhill to the point where, again, I will quote the book here. You say in the introduction of the book, something that I know you guys both believe, you say, American democracy is on the brink of collapse, which is a pretty stark thing to say. So that inflection point is with this case. So I'm just kind of curious how you have seen it. Like when it happened, you obviously thought it was bad, but could you immediately see and just did not want to say out loud how bad it could be for voting rights in America at that moment in 2013 when the decision came down? Yeah, I thought it was bad, but I didn't really fully understand the dimensions or the extent to how bad it was going to be. I mean, I lived that case, you know, working on what our arguments were going to be, working with our very able Solicitor General, uh, Don Varelli, seeing what Congress had done, passing the reauthorization of the act by huge margins, I guess unanimously in the Senate, negative votes in, in the House, signed by a Republican president. And to see the United States Supreme Court essentially say, all right, the hundreds of thousands of pages of testimony that you have, the thousands of documents that you have that Congress has put uh, into place as part of the record to justify the reauthorization of the act, for them to say, no, as the Chief Justice said, America has changed. And therefore, a component of the act that is really critical to its efficacy is no longer valid. That, for me, I mean, that for me really said that this Supreme Court that I have long revered, even though I sometimes disagreed with it, was a fundamentally different kind of organization, a fundamentally different body than I expected it to be. Sammy, you're at this point when this decision gets handed down. I think you just graduated from maybe from high school at that I point. I mean, I don't you're tell just... anyone my age. This is, a, this is a horrifying expose here on the podcast. Wait, well, but yes, but, well, <laughs> no, 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 no. I was. I was just, I think. Just about just to start gradu- college. Yeah, ju- just, just graduated, just about to head off to college, right? Yep. The reason I'm going to ask the question is that I know you were politically conscious before you went off to, to, to that school in Cambridge that we won't name because, you know, we don't like to drop the H-bomb too often on this podcast. Freaks everybody out. But You, you did. Know, I didn't have to do it. Perfect. Yeah, I know. I know. That's the way we all like it. You were politically conscious before that, but essentially your adult life has been the era of voting rights under siege and eroding pretty much steadily from that case that, that, that we've been talking about. Did that shape your consciousness about voting rights and, and get you interested in the topic enough that you end up being a co-author of this book? I'm just curious kind of your evolution of your thinking like, and your political development to the point where this became, you're sitting here on this podcast right now next to the former attorney general as a co-author of the book, not a ghostwriter, not a researcher, but like a full-on above-the-fold co-author. That's a pretty big deal. It's a great question. You know, I think a lot about the pessimism of the people who are a little younger than me, Gen Z, and you look at their TikToks and it's nihilistic and fatalistic. Must I? Must and, I? I don't have to. You don't have to. Take my word for it. But my generation, I grew up and saw the country elect President Obama and saw him appoint people like Attorney General Eric Holder. And our first experience with politics after the Bush years was one of hope and belief that your voice actually mattered. And so when Shelby County happened and, you know, 
hours later, Greg Abbott, of all people, same guy who's such a coward on guns, tweets at AG Eric Holder, we're going to pass this bill now that you've been trying to stop. I, from that moment forward, watched not only these bills pass across the country, but watched what was a bipartisan shared belief. The three times the Voting Rights Act was reauthorized, it was signed by Republican presidents. This wasn't some controversial partisan issue. I watched that as the fulcrum inflection point lead to an entire party become opposed not to certain voting policies, but to democracy itself. And then I see that lead in part to the election of Donald Trump, who clearly never had much taste for democracy. And, you know, before the 2020 election, there's that quote of his that we've sort of all glossed over and forgotten, where he said, you know, if all Americans voted, we'd never win another election again. Oh, And he yes. just said that on TV. Yeah. And yeah. you see him say that, and you contrast it with the Obama electorate, which diverse, young, actually representative of the people. And it's clear we have one political party that believes, whether or not this is true is unclear, but that believes that if more people are voting, they're going to win fewer elections. We have another party that says, let's make our democracy a democracy. It makes it so the like both sidesism that characterized politics before I came of age seems completely anachronistic. Because what I've seen in my experience is that there's one party that thinks that more voices should be heard and one party that thinks more people should be shut out. And so that's why when the opportunity came to help the attorney general tell this story, it was a no brainer. That's the Shelby County versus Holder case. In yeah. the year since he's left the office, it's been Holder versus Shelby County. He's been right. traveling across this country, yeah. trying to fix gerrymandering, trying to fight against these voter suppression bills. That's just been such a meaningful, inspiring thing, seeing him keep up that fight. Most people do that job and then they just go make a bunch of money and retire. And he's just kept up this fight because he believes in it. And so if there's anyone to write this book with, it's, it's him. And it was an honor to be even a part of it. So Eric, if I go back, I look at the press conference you did at the White House when the decision came down in Shelby County, and you say, oh, we need to be clear about what happened today. Part of the Voting Rights Act, but not all of it was struck down. The Constitution protected voting rights of all Americans remain fully intact. You call it a serious and necessary setback, but you say the Justice Department is going to be committed to moving forward in a way that's consistent with the arc of American history. And you paint that in a positive way. And obviously, you know, this is not a moment for alarmism, right? You don't want to stand up there in the White House and say, man, we're fucked. But you know, even a couple years later, Barack Obama goes down to Selma to call for the reauthorization of the Voting Rights Act. I want to hear that. And just, again, I'm pointing to it just because there seems like there was still, at the time, it seemed bad, but not terminal <laughs> in those moments. Here's Obama at the Edmund Pettus Bridge in March of 2015, two years after. Let's listen to that. The Voting Rights Act was one of the crowning achievements of our democracy. The result of Republican and Democratic efforts. President Reagan signed its renewal when he was in office. President George W. Bush signed its renewal when he was in office. 100 members of Congress have come here today to honor people who are willing to die for the right to protect it. If we want to honor this day, let that 100 go back to Washington and gather 400 more and together pledge to make it their mission to restore that law this year. Restore that law this year. Politicians, in my experience, don't generally get that specific about things unless they think there's a chance of that thing happening. And as it turns out, you know, again, all due respect to Barack Obama, LOL, didn't happen that year, hasn't happened since, isn't close to happening anytime now. And I guess this is my question, is whether you and he were very clear-eyed at the time 
that, man, this is really bad and it's going to be really hard to turn it around. Or at least in those first couple of years, you were like, this is bad, but you know, there's this bipartisan history. Of course, we can fix this problem. And only as time passed did you come to realize just how dangerous the situation was and how much the Republican Party was being taken over by anti-democratic forces, uh, epitomized by Trump, but not solely. Yeah, I mean, I certainly thought it was bad and that it was, you know, extremely bad. But it would not have been, I think, an appropriate or efficacious thing for me to get out the next day and say, our democracy is over, you know. I gathered a bunch of civil rights leaders together to say we were going to continue to fight for the, the right to vote, to protect the right to vote, access to the, the polls. And there was a part of me also that thought, all right, so the Supreme Court's gotten it wrong. There will not be a, an erosion among Republicans such that fixing the bill that I didn't think necessarily needed to be fixed, but fixing the bill in such a way that the Supreme Court would say, okay, this latest iteration of the bill will be fine. I thought that that possibility, you know, still existed. So I thought, all right, we have to deal with an act that has been negatively impacted, gutted, as, as I say now. But I did think that in a relatively short period of time, we could put in place a bill that in fact would be better and that ultimately was proposed before uh, Congress just last year to take the voting rights bill and not just have covered jurisdictions that basically mirrored the old Confederate states, but to make it something that would be nationwide in, in, in scope. So yeah, certainly damage, serious damage. Still had section two. Keep your eye on that for the next term in, in the court. We'll see what they do with section two of the Voting Rights Act, which is really one of the only intact parts of the bill that's still there. But with section two, and with the thought that we could repair the bill for Supreme Court scrutiny, that there was still some basis to believe that although the Shelby County decision w was terrible, it wasn't necessarily as all negative encompassing as it has uh, turned out to be. There's three parts of the book. There's the history, then there's the diagnosis of the what I would think was the post-Shelby period and the backlash to Obama's presidency and then the Trump presidency take things from bad, dangerous to worse and put us on the edge of democratic doom, extinction, whatever. And you do this analysis and you lay it all out. And then we get to part three of the book, which is your A More Perfect Future, where you go through your prescriptions. I've read them all. There's a lot of them. I'm going to give you guys a jump ball for you guys to talk about however you want, because you have prescriptions that are specifically about voting rights and voting access. There's stuff about the court. There's stuff about the Congress, both the House and the Senate reform proposals. Give me a sense of how you guys want to handle it. You can talk about it however you want. I have questions about specific ones, but I want to hear what you guys think are like the one or two things that you really want people to be like, oh yeah, these are the higher order bits here about how we have to fix our democracy, because you're not going to get all this stuff done. I can tell you that right now, at least in any near term. So if you want to put your shoulder behind a couple of these big proposals, what are the ones you want to focus on? Sam, you can go first. Yeah. So we start with the stuff that should be no brainers and that other functioning democracies have automatic voter registration. So if it's at the, on the rolls when they're 18, same day voter registration, no purges for use it or lose it, all that stuff. And we think that's important. We think that needs to be passed and that's key to winning elections. But fundamentally, the reason that those no brainer policies don't pass is because the structure of our democracy is so broken. And so when it comes to saving the House and saving the state legislatures that pass these suppressive bills in the first place, you got to get rid of gerrymandering, which makes everyone more extreme, which makes elections less competitive, which makes Congress unrepresentative. 
you also got to find a way to make it so that the Senate is not as warped as it is. I talked about that a little bit earlier. But, you know, you have states like North Dakota where voters have 50 times more say in what happens in the Senate than California. We say if it's like a two on 100 basketball game, that's not going to be close. Obviously, the team with more players is going to have more of a say. So make D.C. a state, make Puerto Rico a state, figure out how to get rid of the filibuster, which that's even crazier. If the 40 senators from the least populous states, or 41, wanted to stop a bill that was supported by the 59 from the most populous states, they'd represent about 18% of the people. So 18% could stop the will of 82% of the people from being enacted. Mm -hmm. So fix the Senate, and then fixing the Supreme Court, which we can let the Attorney General talk about more, partly in response to what he'd seen from them. But once Mm -hmm. you fix those structures, we'll be able to actually pass the policies to make our elections work. And of course, it works the other way, where we've got to elect politicians who will pass those policies to change the structure. And that's why we're in this democratic doom loop. But the only answer is in the face of this, not unprecedented, because it's precedented for most of American history, but suppression, we've got to vote like we've never voted before in the face of all of these attacks. So, so Eric, I come back to the thing. There's, I do want to talk about your proposals to fix the court. And I also want to talk about gerrymandering in a second. But let's stay with the court for right now, because I said before that you lost some faith in the Supreme Court. And I want you to say more about that, because it also informs the kind of proposals that you have for trying to fix the court, which are pretty, I don't want to say radical, but would be a bit more dramatic. I mean, it would be a significant departure from what most people have come to expect about how the Supreme Court runs in America. So just talk about your loss of faith. Do you have any faith in the Supreme Court at this point? Is it fundamentally been undermined in some way? Do you think the court is now wholly political? And especially in the context of what we now know is about to happen with Roe, or we think is about to happen with Roe, just give me your sense of of the court's legitimacy at this moment, and then what to do about it. Well, I I certainly think that the court's legitimacy is waning, and the polls all show that from a 60% approval rating, I think down to a 40% approval rating the last time I saw that. The court I don't, is not necessarily partisan or doing things for political reasons, but the court is overly ideological. I don't think there's any question about that. And the 5-4 court that gutted the Voting Rights Act of 1965 is now a 6-3 court and is more ideological with three Trump appointees two seats that were essentially stolen from the Democrats. And don't think that people in in this country don't understand that. That's just not a Washington beltway kind of thing. People understand what happened there. And so I, I think that is something that's bad for the court, but ultimately it's bad for our democracy. If people lose faith in the folks who has Chief Justice Roberts famously said, are supposed to call balls and strikes. If you think the umpires are favoring one side or have a view of the game that's inconsistent with how the rules are set out, that's going to have a negative impact on the perception of the court and make the court a less legitimate branch of our government. And that's really, really dangerous. I mean, it's one thing to say, Congress, we don't have great faith in Congress. Well, you can always have the ability to put in reform candidates, and you see Congresses that are good, others that are bad, some that are active, some that are inactive. We always hold the court out in in a special way. And what Mitch McConnell did, what the majority up to now has done, what this supermajority, I think, is on the verge of doing. And here's the deal. I mean, people need to understand over the course of the next 18 months or so, this term and the next term, this court is going to rule on abortion, affirmative action, an important gun case. There's a whole range of things that this court is going to to deal with. The the, the remaining part, Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, there's a whole range of things that this court is going to vote on 
that could fundamentally change our democracy, fundamentally change the way in which people have ordered their lives based on this notion of adherence to precedence, which is not just a legal thing. I mean, people base their lives on continuity. And this court is apparently turning its back on that needed continuity, that needed adherence to, to precedence for, I think, ideological reasons, all of which, right. all of which right. delegitimizes the court. I look at a picture of the United States Supreme Court right now, and you've got on there, as I look at the, across the top row here on the Supreme Court's website, I got Kavanaugh, I got Kagan, I got Gorsuch, I got Coney Barrett, lower level is Alito, Thomas, Roberts, Breyer, and, and Sotomayor, Breyer, of course, about to be replaced. If my math is right, and I'm not a math specialist, but if my math is right, there's six justices on that court appointed by presidents who didn't win the popular vote. George W. Bush and Donald Trump. Six out of nine lifetime appointees on the court are people who were picked by presidents who got into office by winning fewer votes than their opponent. I think that is a fundamentally fucked up thing. I think most normal people look at that and whether you're liberal or conservative, it was the other way around. I'll tell you, conservatives would think it was a fucked up thing. You guys want to abolish the Electoral College. A lot of people do. I'm for it. Sign me up for that. For that exact reason, the person who gets the fewer votes should not become president of the United States. That makes just never has any sense to me. But you have another proposal, and I want you to talk about it, Mr. Former Attorney General, Mr. Holder, Mr. Eric, um, about what you would do to the court and how you would change the appointment of justices. Yeah, I, I would propose that we have presidents appoint justices to the Supreme Court in the president's first and third year of each term, so that every president in a term would appoint two justices, have them serve for a period of 18 years, which over time, and it'll take time, would get us to a court of nine justices. That way, you bring new people on to the court. People would not necessarily stay in unelected and powerful positions for 30 and, and, and 40 years. That's too much power to an individual for too long a period of time. And so having that first and third year appointment would guarantee, again, presidents would have the ability to put people on the court. I mean, what we talk about in the book is Jimmy Carter appointed no people to the court. Franklin Roosevelt, now he was served a longer period of time, appointed eight. And there have been other presidents who appointed nobody to the court. Right. Donald Trump got three. So again, limiting terms. And this is one of those instances where the Chief Justice and I actually agree. We quote in the book a speech that he gave where he says that justices should serve 15 years. I'm enamored of the 18-year term because if you go with the first and third year appointment process within a presidential administration, it would get the court ultimately to nine justices. Though in the short term, I think the court has to be expanded to deal with those two stolen seats that the, the Republicans engineered that put Gorsuch and Amy Coney Barrett on the, uh, on the court. Sam, how likely do you think this proposal is to become effectuated in, in forget about Eric's lifetime, because, you know, he's pretty old, and forget about my lifetime, because I'm not quite as old, but I'm pretty old. I mean, do you think there's a chance that this will get adopted in your lifetime? I mean, I can't believe you just fired those shots over at Eric. Inappropriate. I'm just, I'm just uh, saying, but, we've already said what his birthday was in the show. It's all yeah, out there. I'm just, I'm, I got to do some new information. I come from a family of long livers, okay, just, just for the record. <laughs> Um, <laughs> the holders live on, on average to be 126. He's barely even at the halfway point. Of his exactly. Point. So, so I think, honestly, one of the takeaways of this book is 
how slow change is and then how fast it can be. It's like Hemingway yeah. said about bankruptcy gradually then suddenly. It's how it happens. And I think it's going to be one of these things where our democracy reaches a breaking point. And I don't know which of the two directions it goes in. Like, I think it could go in this political apartheid direction where there's minority rule and minority keeps getting to rule because they get to enact the policies and get to entrench themselves in power. Or there's going to be a yeah. watershed where people decide, yes, we're going to make the Senate fair. Yes, we're going to address the Electoral College. Yes, we're going to fix the court. And I think it's going to be one of those things that comes down to the activism, the relentlessness of the American people. And it's annoying when you have to answer that way. That's just like not fun. There's no prognosticating there. And when you look at this book, the, I mean, that's just a bloody thing. That's a bloody, horrible, difficult march for that kind of progress. It's just what it's going to take to implement the reforms that we need. The things we have to do between now and then, I think, are a big mystery. They're not going to be solved by any one person. But it's going to be the kind of generation to generation fight where we have to decide that our country cares about democracy. I think we'll win that fight because I do think that's the history of this country, this long winding road full of cul-de-sacs that ultimately gets you to the right place. But you know, it's not gonna happen on its own. It's gonna come down to people, A, deciding to give a shit about this and B, doing what it takes to get other people to give a shit about it. And so we'll see. But you know, John, the other thing I would say is that the answer to your question, is it possible, has to be yes. Because if you can't imagine the possibility of it happening, it will not happen. If Andrew Young and John Lewis and Martin Luther King could not imagine an America that would dismantle a system of racial apartheid, you know, it may have happened over the course of the next 50 years, something like that, but the civil rights movement right. would not have been successful. If Alice Paul, one of the heroes that we talk about in the right for women's suffrage, could not imagine that, in fact, women would get the right to vote and then work for it, as Sam says, work for it, yeah. it would not have happened. So you've got to do the work, but you've also got to envision the possibility, the reality that you can be successful in the quest and imagine a Supreme Court that has an appointment process that makes a greater amount of, of sense, that you have justices right. that have terms that are limited, and then all the other reforms that we talk about in the book. If you can't imagine right. them as actually happening, they never will. They never will. Look, the historical part of the book, I'll just, I'll just shout it out because I love the way the book is structured. There's obviously mentions of people like Medgar Evers, who you guys give a decent amount of space to and is semi-famous, not famous in the way that Martin Luther King is. But you know, you get to learn about people like Jimmy Lee Jackson and, and other other names. For people who are not deep scholars on the civil rights movement, there's a lot to learn in the book. And, and it's very inspirational. These last people were visionaries and you have to honor them. And you're right about the necessity of being able to imagine things that are almost unimaginable in order for change to happen. But look, you've been working on the redistricting stuff for a while, right? One of the things you say in the book is at the core of our polarization, and I got to tell you, I think you and I may have talked about this previously. When I go and give speeches, I've been doing it for a long time now. The thing that I you know, talk about polarization and everybody says, well, how are you going to fix it? It's the question I get more than almost anything out in the world giving speeches over the course of the last decade. Man, it's partisan. Man, it's polarized. Man, it's bitter. Man, it seems intractable. You point to it. There's all this data to support it. How's that going to get fixed? And I always say, well, here are some ideas for how you could fix it, but none of them I think are going to happen anytime soon. And here's why. Your big thing in the book is we got to fix partisan gerrymandering. That's the like at the heart of getting rid of polarization. It's one of the key elements of it. Do you feel like if you've seen up close in that fight makes you optimistic that that's something that could happen, that it's plausible to happen on any time frame that matters to me or you? 
at our advanced age yeah. or to Sam at his less advanced age? Yeah, I think even at my advanced age. I mean, I think if you compare this cycle to, you know, 2021, which bled into 2022 because of the pandemic, as opposed to the 2011 cycle, where Democrats were essentially asleep at the wheel and Republicans had a you know, project red map and they really went to town with regard to gerrymandering, that we could actually get to a better place by the next cycle. I think we're in a fundamentally better place now than we were before. I think you know, Democrats have a slight advantage in terms of the number of seats that they will have in the House of Representatives, and a number of the state legislatures are in, in a better place. But we still have problematic places like Texas, Georgia, Wisconsin, potentially Florida. But I think by the next cycle, so this is like within the next 10 years or so, and with a continued focus on the problem of, of gerrymandering, bringing lawsuits, raising the consciousness of people, putting in place more of these independent commissions, supporting candidates who will stand not only for fair elections, but for an ungerrymandered system. I think that we could see within 10 years a fundamental change. Now, this is something that will be difficult, but I can envision this as happening. And I'm really optimistic about this based on the experience that I've had since, I guess, January of 2017, when we formed the National Democratic Redistricting Committee that I lead, that really fought for a fair redistricting process. And we've seen really significant progress just in the course of the last five years. But Democrats and progressives can't think that, all right, Holder did a pretty good job in 2021, 2022. We're done. We have to play the long game. And the long game means staying involved during the course of this decade and still focusing on the problem of partisan and racial gerrymandering. We are going to take one more break and we'll be back with more Helen Highwater. And we're back with Helen Highwater. I'm glad that your experience gives you some hope because I'm always looking for signs of hope. I am actually accused by many of my friends as being secretly a pie-eyed optimist about stuff, even though I don't necessarily come across that way in public. I read in the book, I read these lines, and I love them. In the conclusion of the book, you say, now anyone who tells you that progress is inevitable is mistaken, but anyone who tells you progress can't be won is being just as ignorant. Because Americans bent that arc at a time, I guess the arc to the moral universe is what that refers to, at a time when the resistance was much greater, when you could be lynched, buried alive, assassinated in front of your children for so much as trying to register to vote. So do not give in to cynicism. Do not give in to fatalism. Do not give in to nihilism. Man, I'm, I'm on board for that. You have my vote and I agree with all of that. When people have posed to you the notion that, hey man, some of these things seem a little pie in the sky. I saw this other quote of yours, Eric, in a, a TV interview. I want to make sure I get this right. Here you said, you talk about Americans, but you know what? That's what we do as Americans. We do big things. We did the New Deal, the New Frontier, the Great Society. And I think one of the failings of our society in recent years has been that we've not had this vision. So I, I want to point out, first of all, New Deal, New Frontier, Great Society, those are a long time ago. And I'm, I'm a little bit playing devil's advocate here, but what signs do we have that America still does big things? We started out this conversation talking about the intractability of the gun problem, despite the fact that there are just kids getting slaughtered in mass shootings on almost a daily basis and we don't do anything about it. Like... What's the examples of the big things that we've done in Sammy's lifetime where it's been a big thing that America's gone and done on the scale of the ones you cited that makes us think that the country is capable at this point of rising to the challenge of an existential threat to our democracy? Yeah, well, I would say the Affordable Care Act. I mean, that's certainly something that is big and is going to get bigger as the years go by. I think the American people are still there and the American people are hankering 
for leadership that will do, as John Kennedy said, you know, in talking about the moonshot, we want to go to the moon and do the, the hard things, not because they're easy, but because they're hard. The American people, I think, are still there. It's our, our leadership that has, has gotten to, to focus on only the political, only to play small ball. And I think properly led that the American people are still capable of doing big things. And it's that that fueled my desire to write this book, to work with Sam and come out with yeah. these proposals that seem pie in the sky. But again, this country has done big things. We have made big changes internally. We've uh, impacted the world in a way that no other country ever has. The 20th century was described as an American century. The 21st century can be an American century as well if we have the appropriate leadership and tap into uh, an America that seems divided now. But I think that still, you know, divided politically, but most Americans still have desires for the same kinds of things. They want good schools for their kids. They want to feel safe in their communities. They want to have the chance at a better life. They want a fair deal. You know, they want a fair shot. I think it's still there. And I think it's just a question of tapping into that optimism that I think essentially defines the American experiment. Sam, I want you to speak to the younger generation here. You cited Barack Obama was a big inspiration for you, and, and you were a huge Barack Obama supporter, right? When Eric Holder said, and this, the thing I read, and I think one of the failings of our society in recent years has been that we've not had this vision to do big things. Now, I implicitly just assume that when Eric says in recent years, this counts as the years after Barack Obama left office. So when he says recent years, what he means is 2017 on. <laughs> there are people as you know, on the left in other places in the Democratic Party, who would apply that same criticism to Barack Obama and say, you know, God, I invest a lot of hope in Barack Obama, but the Affordable Care Act's nice, but it's not what I thought I was getting. He wasn't ambitious enough. He wasn't bold enough. He was more Clintonian than he was transformational or what I hoped he would be. You and I have talked about politics a million times, but I'm curious how you think about this and whether you, as you sit here, having been Someone who, I believe you wrote a letter in the New York Times about how you were for Hillary Clinton at Harvard was like equivalent to people looking at you like Pat Buchanan. Um, <laughs> and, that, and that saying, I'm with her, was just this side of Make America Great Again on the Harvard campus, right? So a lot, you went to school with a There's lot of people who were like, you did it. Barack Obama, the ameliorizing, middle of the road, compromising, not transformational, not blah, blah, blah. Tell me like what you've seen that you think yeah, big shit's still possible from this country. So, you know, we could list off the different accomplishments from the Obama administration. I think that's probably not what you're looking for. I got to tell you, I'm looking right now at an administration and am incredibly frustrated. What I meant was, sort of the, the, starting from the point of, you were for Obama because you thought he was transformational. At the end of it now, with your experience looking back, do you look back and say he actually was transformational and that's part of what infuses you with a sense of optimism? Or do you look back and say something else. How do you interpret that now in the light of your own history and history itself? Right. So I think regardless of what happened during the administration, and I do think those policies are critical, I think that movement that led to his election is the moment in my lifetime where we saw Americans care about politics and then actually take action and vote not based on negative partisanship, which I think led to the election of Joe Biden, but vote based on sort of an earnest belief in the possibility of a president. And, you know, I'm looking right now at this administration that has failed in all of these key ways to address the most cons 
pressing concerns of my generation of Americans broadly. Nothing on voting rights, nothing on guns, very little on climate after the bipartisan infrastructure package. Watch them have this big Build Back Better plan, $3.5 trillion, make a deal with Manchin for $1.5 trillion, back off, and now there's $0 trillion, $0 at all in favor of this policy. (laughs) I've seen people who are my generation really struggle with inflation and deal with increased prices and all sorts of things and who are frustrated that this isn't changing. But I do have to say that writing this book with Eric completely reoriented me in this. Just in thinking about the scale of these big things Americans do, the time frame that it takes place, like those things take decades and decades and decades. And, you know, we like talking about Elizabeth Cady Stanton and the other suffragists are writing this sort of like journal reflecting on the suffrage movement around 1900. And they've been at this for decades and decades and have seen like nothing, like basically nothing's changed. Maybe two states let women vote. They've got writer's block when they're starting to write this because they're like, we don't even know how we're going to frame this progress. Like 18 years later, women have the right to vote across all 50 states. So it's about channeling that moment of excitement, that moment of hope that we had in 2008, bringing that back, believing that things can change, not giving into the cynicism, not giving into the nihilism, and then knowing that that change, that transformational change, the big things that Americans do do that I think the attorney general's right about, that those don't happen overnight. They happen because of relentless, persistent work, which is obviously hard to ask of a generation that's used to instant gratification and doesn't invest in the long term in all sorts of different ways. But I think that this administration can be pressured into doing all sorts of things and that we are in that moment, in that 1900 moment when those suffragists are miserable and don't know what's going to happen. And they made the choice to keep going. And the question is whether we're going to throw in the towel or follow their lead. Sure hope we follow their lead. And John, one one thing I'd say, John, you'll know this. You know, our nation kind of goes in cycles. The New Deal, 1932, I think maybe it ends with Reagan, maybe a little before that. The conservative era that started with Reagan, I think, is over. It's exhausted. It's not over, but it, it, it is exhausted. What do conservatives stand for? I actually think that there is a progressive era that is fighting to be born here, you know? And I think that the election of Barack Obama showed that, took a step back with the election of, of Donald Trump. But that with this younger generation, Sam's generation, that they have a fundamentally different view of what they expect from government, where they want the nation to be. And I think this progressive era, struggling to be born, ultimately will have life in its lungs and will take this country in a direction the likes of which we can only imagine now. But I think that's going to happen. I think it's going to happen. It will not happen easily because the people who have power now don't want to give it up. And all of this stuff about the vote and concerns about voter integrity, that's all about power retention. That era, I think, is is exhausted and it's time to move on to this new progressive era. I have one last question. Well, it's going to be a little bit topical. I'm a student of both of your public appearances. I've been obsessively watching uh, all the live streams. Everywhere you guys go out on the road, I keep tabs on you to make sure that you're performing well. Um, (laughs) And you're both doing a great job. But I have noted one thing, which is that, Eric, I've seen you ask this question that I'm about to ask you a bunch of times, which is the should Donald Trump be indicted question. I will say that as a careful student, that your answer has shifted a bit over time. You started out in a much more kind of, well, you know... uh, 
uh, we got to look at the evidence. And I think if it all goes a certain way, we might want to indict him. Maybe, maybe, maybe. And, but, you know, it'd be unprecedented. There'd be a lot of division and this would be really difficult. That was the first few days of the book tour. Without totally retracting that, you moved a little bit more into a different place that seems a little bit more, well, yes, it will be divisive if we do this. And yet it will be divisive if we don't. I want to play, here's the, the Larry Tribe take on one of your early appearances. It's actually more just his argument for why Trump should be indicted. And I think this actually is kind of where you are now, but I want to come back and ask you a couple questions about it. All the things that would give a lot of Americans hope, Donald Trump being indicted, uh, hope for possibility of big change in the future. This might make people more happy of, among tens of millions of Americans than anything else. Let's play Tribe's argument for why Donald Trump should be indicted. I think the evidence quite clearly proves that he is guilty of various forms of criminal conspiracy, attempted overthrow of the government, unsuccessful but nonetheless violent insurrection, uh, also violations of the laws of Georgia. And when people say, as the former Attorney General Eric Holder did on your air last night, that yes, he's committed indictable crimes in all likelihood, but it would be divisive uh, to indict him. With all respect, I think that divisiveness is a given in our current situation. It would encourage him to do it again, not to indict him. It's not simply a matter of sort of getting even, but a matter of deterring the destruction of democracy. So I ask you, number one, am I right that your position has shifted a bit just in the last couple of weeks on this? And number two, is that now, I think, where you currently are, reserving some judgment, but basically saying, yes, it looks like on the basis of all this evidence that he should be indicted. And that although it's very t difficult, there must be accountability. So you're for it if that's where the evidence points. Yeah. You know, I think my position certainly has shifted. I, I, maybe I was not as artful recently as I should have been, because I, I essentially agree with what Larry Tribe has said there. When I was saying divisive, I've been a prosecutor, you know, all my life. And there's a thing, prosecutorial d discretion. You can prove cases against people and decide not to bring them for a variety of legitimate reasons. And the impact of an indictment of a former president and what that will do to the country, it seems to me, is a legitimate thing to consider. That doesn't mean that having said that you should consider it doesn't mean that you shouldn't bring the indictment. I, I think accountability is certainly something that has to be a part of the equation. But I think maybe more importantly, deterrence has to be a part of the, the equation. You cannot allow the Trump crowd to get away with what it is that they did or tried to do because it tells people 10, 20, 30, 40 years from now, well, why don't you give it a shot? And if you're not successful, nothing, in fact, is going to happen to you. And I did a, a thing with David Axelrod maybe a couple of years or so ago where I said, I'm an institutionalist, and the institutional side of me pulled me more away from the possibility of indicting the former president than where I am now. And that has happened largely because I understand more about what it is they actually try to do. You know, the leaks that have come from the January Sixth Committee, the great job that yeah. people in the media have done in finding out who said what and the plans that they had, you know, even the, the involvement of Ginny Thomas in, in, in all of these things uh, has yeah. made me understand the breadth and depth of what it is that they were trying to do. And it certainly pushed me more towards the side of an indictment of a former president, understanding how divisive it might be. 
I think at the very beginning of the book tour that maybe some of that Axelrod language was still floating around your head because a few of those answers you gave at the very top of the book tour were a little bit more in that old Axelrod vein. And I think you found your way towards a little bit more clarity. Whatever your current view is, you started to express it more clearly in recent days. And I'm, I'm grateful for it because I think that's the right position. And I guess my question is whether you think on the basis of what you know of Merrick Garland as an attorney general, but more importantly, as, as someone who's been a, a major figure in, in the DC legal world for a long time, do you think that he thinks about this the way you just did, which is to say that if the facts are there, that accountability, deterrence, and the other values that you just laid on the table as reasons to indict him despite the disruptiveness and divisiveness, et cetera, is that how he thinks about this? Will those be like, yes, the facts are here, accountability matters, deterrence matters, and so those attributes, those assets, those things in the list of pros, P-R-O-S, pros, not cons, will lead him in that direction. I'm not stipulating that he will decide that the facts are there, but do you think that's how he thinks about this? Yeah, I actually think that is the way he thinks about it, that if you can come up with sufficient proof that Trump was involved in these matters and that you can prove the necessary intent that a successful prosecution would have to deuce for a jury, that in fact, he would bring the case taking into account all the things that I've said, divisiveness, accountability, deterrence. I think that's the way he thinks. And, you know, he's a very careful person with language, having been a judge and just kind of the way he's wound. I've known Merrick for a long time. And that speech he gave, I guess, on January the 5th, where he talked about holding people accountable at any level. Following the ev- at any level, holding any account at any level, and following the evidence wherever it that lies. Those I are the kind of key the, elements of that. At any level, those three words uh, in that speech, uh, I, I think, really tell you more about his approach to this than maybe anything else. I mean, yeah, you'll certainly look at was there sufficient involvement? Did he act with the requisite intent? But at any level, I, I think he'll do, from my perspective, uh, I think he'll do what people will say is the right thing, assuming that we get to that point. Sam, having not gone to law school, thank God, <laughs> because I would, you know, I mean, both your father and I would have wanted to strangle you if you'd gone to law school. Having not gone to law school, but having done one better, which is work on a book with Eric Holder, and now having gotten a way better, more practical legal education than you could have ever gotten at, at like the law school at that place in Cambridge. Do you think it's clear that Donald Trump, like Tribe says, he says there's clear indications, clear evidence that he's committed these crimes. Do you think that's obvious? I mean, yeah, I would defer to the lawyers in my life. Wrote my last book with uh, Neil Katyal, Solicitor General. Yeah, I know. I know. That's what I'm saying. You really, you've got better than a law degree at this point. You've got like, so, you know, if he's saying that he thinks this is where the evidence leads. Well, I'm asking you, as you look at this as a person with some legal sophistication and a lot of interest in in Trump, and I know someone who thinks that Trump is a menace to democracy. You guys wrote about it in the book, what happened on January 6th. Here's what I say. I say, if it's not illegal, it fucking should yes. be. I mean, um, I, I'm not a lawyer, but I, I, I mean, my God, how could he not have violated the laws, the election <laughs> laws in Georgia when he called Raffensperger? I hope that not be illegal. If that's not illegal, we got to do something. I mean, it was definitely a high crime, spent a ton of time studying what counts as an impeachable offense. And Neil and I actually wrote a right. New York Times op-ed before the insurrection, after the phone call saying this guy obviously has to be removed from office. It's clearly a high crime and looked into a bunch of the criminal codes surrounding this. And the intent is not unclear. We've got Recordings of him saying what he was going to do, premeditated, saying that if the election didn't go his way, he was going to interfere with it. And then we saw him act on it, not just, by the way, in that speech on January 6th, which was obviously awful, but Mike Pence's letter to him is the thing that I think is most damning, where he's like, you tried to get me to not certify the Electoral College. I mean, 
that is as blatant from the person who was closest to him as you could possibly imagine. And so I don't think this seems like a particularly close call, but obviously the Attorney General Merrick Garland knows better, and I am fortified in my belief that this will go the right way based on the Attorney General Eric Holder's take on it. What's been the best part about working on a book, about co-authoring a book with Eric Holder? Honestly, the fact that you could ask him any question about any of these things, as you've just seen, and he has a complete fluency and will give you not just the facts and figures, but the stories behind all of it. And what's been the worst, what's been the worst thing? <laughs> about, uh, co-authoring a book with Eric Holder? We had what's this extended debate about whether to include an F-bomb in the book, having to do with a yeah. quote from Stringer Bell. And I actually was on yeah. the side that maybe we want this book taught in middle schools, elementary schools, probably not, maybe more like high schools, and maybe there'll be a a child edition or something like that about the history of voting rights. And he was like, no, Stringer Bell said fucking criminal conspiracy, so we're going to keep that in the book, which uh, I'm pretty pretty happy about. I'm I'm so, I'm so withholder. (laughs) I'm so withholder on this. You guys are awesome. Yeah, I took more time of yours than you know, I was supposed to, but I find you both totally delightful. And, and Sam, I gotta always give Sam time. You know, if it's just you, me, you and Eric, we had, you and me, Eric, we would have knocked it out in an hour. But Sam, yak, 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 yak. Oh my God. All right. <laughs> I'm hanging up this phone. <laughs> anyway, listen, congratulations on the book again. Good to see you. And uh, we'll see you out there. Hell and High Water is a podcast from The Recount. Thanks again, Eric Holder, Sam Koppelman, the authors of the tremendous new book, Our Unfinished March, The Violent Past and Imperiled Future of the Vote, A History, A Crisis, A Plan. If you like this episode, please subscribe to Hell and High Water and share us and rate us and review us on whatever app you happen to use to bask in the splendor of the podcast universe. I am your host and the executive editor of The Recount, John Heilman. Grace Weinstein is a co-creator of Hell and High Water. Matthew Kaplowitz is our video editor. Megan Burney engineered the podcast. Margot Gray is our assistant producer. And the man, the myth, the legend, Marshall Eisen is our executive producer. Producer.